Okay, welcome back to the Black Menace Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Weaver, and I'm here with my other host, Nate Bird. Super happy to be back on the podcast again. I don't know why I do that every He time. always says he's happy to be back when it's like, who, who else is coming back, Nate? As if I ever left. <laughs> right. right. It's always you and me. <laughs> I'll figure it out. The same way we mess up the uh, the email every oh week. every my intro. episode. <laughs> I need to just write it down. Okay, um, well, we have a guest with us today, Nate. Yeah, so this is a, a longtime friend. She's actually the one that introduced me to the Black Student Union at BYU, and uh, like my very first week, picked me up and took me to like a barbecue with a whole bunch of black people in Utah. And I was like, wow, I didn't know black people existed in Utah. But oh. um, you remember that? I actually don't. You, yeah, you and Deborah picked me up and took me to the Genesis barbecue. No, I know that I like every time like someone new came to BYU, like uh-huh. someone new was black, it came to BYU. I'm like, okay, we gotta go <laughs> introduce them to everyone, you know. Yeah. So, and that's how it was. It was great. And then I think like my first month at campus, she asked me to be in the BSU presidency. I'm like, huh? <laughs> my little 17 year old <laughs> self. I don't know what I was doing, but I was out you there. You were had, solid. Had me out there. Uh, chasing down people with flyers talking about come to bsu lol but uh, yeah <laughs> this is naverlene um i don't I, my, well okay mm-hmm. so my maiden name is volsi oh right. that's what i want to say oh yeah her. okay yeah well before we introduce her i didn't want to just leave you hanging and not say you weren't here mm-hmm. but i'm gonna do the mm-hmm. minutes moment before you do your intro if that's okay um because mm-hmm. i just felt bad just being like and we have someone here just hanging in the background <laughs> um <laughs> but for our minutes moment today i'm going to talk about afini shakur for anyone who knows who that is that is also tupac's mother the legend the rap goat um his mother and so her name actually when she was born was alice williams and she was born in the bronx in new york which i'm a wannabe new yorker in my heart so that made me happy and she was actually a really intelligent student performed really well in school but because of financial situations she was not able to attend college but she did join the black panther party in 1968 with their harlem um, chapter and she quickly became a leader within this chapter but in april of 1969 her and 20 other black panthers were arrested and charged with several counts of conspiracy to bomb police stations and other public places in new york the bail for all of them was set at a hundred thousand dollars each and remember, this is like the 1960s, 1970s. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's a lot of money now. And that would be way more back then. But they, uh, the Black Panther parties were able to raise the bail money for her and another Black Panther named Joseph. And they were able to get out and they were able to work on the trial that um, confronted the charges that they all were brought against. And she was able to basically help that her and the other 20 Black Panthers get acquitted of all their charges. And this is also, Tupac was born two months after she was released from prison. And so a lot of people think that he was born in prison, but he wasn't, she had been released. And she is um, a menace just in her ability to lead and her willingness to be a Black Panther and to represent herself in this trial. And the fact that she, you know, was not trained in law, but ha- was able to get her and these other 20 people released from prison and the charges were dropped is um, pretty good. And I aspire to be like her and her willingness to just stand out and the example that she set for her son. I think that being a menace sometimes, you know, not a lot of people know 
necessarily about what she did in the Black Panther movement, but they know about her son and how influential he is. And his music talks a lot about violence. It talks a lot about poverty and things that affect the black community. And through her being able to kind of be that example of standing up and teaching him to be aware helped, you know, him to be who he is today. And she had other issues as well in her life. But I think that part of being a menace doesn't always mean that you directly are changing things sometimes through you you can create a vessel for someone else to change things and many people look to Tupac as an example of strength as a someone who understood what was going on in our community and was speaking out about it mm-hmm. yeah Tupac is wildly influential and we owe that all to his mother yep True. always he's a black my woman favorite. he's like he's my goat I know some people may not have him <laughs> as the goat but he's my goat so. Exactly. I mean, so. It's not Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> no, it's no, not Macklemore. Macklemore is the goat. <laughs> Macklemore? No, just kidding. We're not um, no, I don't listen to current <laughs> thing. You know, music. I don't do that. Mm-mm. I'm kind of like old school with it. Oh. He's good. a good one, uh, as it should be. And I went to I when I was in LA after graduation. I went to his museum. And that's where I learned more about his story and learned about his mom and. I don't think I had known much about Tupac previously to this, and I just went on a whim, and it was probably one of the coolest museums I've ever been to because they had original pieces of paper that he would like write when he was in prison, when he or just like his ideas of when he was a kid, when he was writing out. You know, he had ideas for not just he didn't have ideas just for like music. He had ideas for movies. He wanted to write poetry. He wanted to write books. Like he had such a arsenal that he was creating within himself just as a creative person and creative people do and so it was really cool to kind of tap into the way his mind worked and seeing his story and kind of why he was the way he was because i don't think i really understood that previously to that so if you're in la and can go to that pop-up museum it's worth every penny i think i'm gonna have to do that the next time i go yeah for sure i haven't been in la for like a couple years but definitely because he's my favorite He's so cool. Good stuff. Well, Navaline, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Okay, so my name is Navaline, as they said, and I am originally from New York. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. You know, I kind of hopped around like into different states. I lived in Florida, and then I moved to Idaho, and then I landed in Utah, and I've been in Utah for the past 10 years, actually. Um, don't know why. You've <laughs> <laughs> getting stuck in Utah, man. Yeah, you just get stuck. So, um, yeah, so right now I'm currently working as a medical lab scientist up in Salt Lake City. Period. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I graduated from Brigham Young University, and uh, and right now I do little side th- things that I do, creative stuff. Like I'm doing a podcast right now, and I'm also like I love writing. So that's a little bit about me. Cool. Amen. I love it. I love to hear it. I love to hear about people's like side things they do aside from their like main career, and it mm-hmm. like has nothing to do, like no correlation, <laughs> not in a bad way. Like I love, yeah. he- I love learning that. I think it's so cool to hear about people's like side passions. So yeah, it's yeah. always fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that. You got bills, you know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you Period. got bills to pay, but you also got a life to live. You got to find the balance. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So love it. 
Well, cool. So I'm glad to hear that you survived BYU. And our time there overlapped just a little bit. And um, we actually served in the, the Black Student Union presidency together for about a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about like what your experience was at BYU? Mm-hmm. Like What made you go there in the first place? Um, what was it like as a freshman like compared to when you were a senior? Lay it on us. Okay. Okay. So um, when I went to BYU, the only reason why I went to BYU is because that was the only school that my mom would let me go to that was mm. out of the state of New York. Mm. So I wanted to have the college experience of being on my own and um, just not having someone tell me, you know, you got to be home at this time or whatever. Just me being having that like adult experience. And so that's why I went to BYU. So um, my when I first got there, I was just looking for the black people to be quite honest. Same. <laughs> It was like a sea of just white people everywhere. And mm-hmm. I'm not used to that because in New York, you had Asian people, black people, Hispanic people, like a, just a diverse group of people around. So I knew, OK, let me go and find one speck, just one person. <laughs> and um, I went to the I think it was orientation dance. I don't know if they still had that. I think so. so. I was pretty much like a wide eyed type of girl you know wanting to just dive into you know meeting other people from different areas and things like that I wasn't really open to white people (laughs) not on purpose but just I just felt like they were already what's the word kind of distant from me anyway Mm. and so I was like okay let me go find some other black people that I could maybe relate to and then create that kind of community. And then that's when I got introduced to BSU. So, yeah, I survived BYU because of BSU. Mm. Same. Same. (laughs) (laughs) No, literally. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, the place was just, you know, um, I remember the first year that I was there, uh, my first semester, I was taking this chemistry class. And I was studying on the terrace. You guys know where the terrace is. Um, and I was sitting on this table by, by myself. And these group of kids, they come and sit down at the table with me. And um, I'm just, you know, doing my little thing, trying to study for this exam that's coming up. And then I hear one of the the word nigger. Oh, no. <laughs> like, no, legit. No. And when I tell you, like, my heart was beating so fast, like, like so fast because <laughs> I'm like oh my gosh what am I gonna do and I think that like when I looked up one of the girls at the table was kind of looking around to see if I heard what he had said and I didn't give much of a reaction or anything like that I just gathered my things and I got up from the table and then I asked him to come with me so I can have a conversation mm, you're better than and me Listen. <laughs> yeah because everybody at the table was like oh <gasps> Cause they were like surprised that I actually said something. They were actually, that I actually heard what he said. So I took him to the side and he was like, apologize. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me buy some ice cream. Yeah. Oh oh no, (laughs) no, not ice cream. Yeah. He offered to buy me some. Very BYU thing though. Also (laughs) some sorry ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like he offered to buy me ice cream. I was like, no, I just want you to know that that word is not yours. Then he started to say, oh, well, you know, the use in the music. And I was like, I don't, I don't care. That word isn't yours. 
Christmas to mm, use. Goodness. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was one of the like nerve wracking experiences. And then also too that that same semester they came out with the, I don't know if you guys saw that video the there was a blackface video where they were going around oh, on yeah. campus mm, during Black History video. Month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were going around on campus during Black History Month. So it was really difficult for me to be in that space because I wasn't used to like that those type of experiences being that was from New York, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And quick thing I want to insert for the <laughs> people who don't know what she's talking about. I think it was twenty twelve, right? I just yeah. remember the day it was pub- the date it was published. Somebody put blackface on and went around BYU campus asking people questions about black people. Very stereotypical questions, racially insensitive questions, and basically kind of being like, I'm a black person. Like, let me act like I'm this person asking people these questions. And the video is very cringe because he's clearly not a black person. Um, yeah, so you can go look that up on BYU on YouTube if you want. It's still there after all these this time. <laughs> oh, Wonderful. yeah. And the crazy thing is that not much has changed because they still have racist incidents every single year. Whether it's yeah. a blackface video, whether it's somebody saying the N-word in a public setting, or whether it's a religious leader or professor <laughs> saying some racist bullshit or something like that. Oops. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, as a, as an LDS member, that was shocking to me, but not mm. quite. Um, it didn't make me feel uncomfortable uncomfortable about who I was but it did um kind of open my eyes to the reality of the space that I was in mm-hmm. you know and um I knew that I had to adjust my thinking as far as like what I'm here for and what I came to do mm-hmm. which was come to get a degree and going about my business Period. and so um when that happened I talked to the other like the the BSU president at the time was Donald and I spoke to him and also the other BSU students, um, BSU members. And a lot of them were like, yeah, this is nothing new. And I was like, what? <laughs> so this is what I have in store for the rest of my time here. So I wasn't really excited about that. So I really had to change my mindset as, as far as like my expectations mm-hmm. and, um, and then kind of think of it like, okay, I have my crew and y'all are just the extras in the, mm, yeah. in the movie. Like, yeah. that's how I had to be like tunnel vision. I'm going to class. I don't see you. I don't see any of you. And that's basically how I was able to survive BYU. Man, that makes so much sense. I've never heard it put like that, but that makes a lot of sense. Like, you have to treat everybody else like they were an extra in the movie. Spectators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that definitely was me at one point, too. And I used to, like, I if you knew me on campus when i got back from my mission i always had music playing whenever i was on campus um i would just like i would put my speaker on my backpack and i would walk to class playing my music really loudly and i used to say like oh that was like so so i can just have fun or whatever but i think now that was like a defense mechanism for me like i couldn't have like a an anxiety blanket or a security blanket so I just played music instead, and that was how I got to class. But, man, I would play my music super loud. I would play songs that I liked. And people would talk to me about it or whatever, but I just did that on my way to class, on my way back from class, on my way on campus, off campus. And that was how I got to and fro. And then by the time senior year rolled around, I didn't even do that anymore. I just had my headphones in, and I just straight to where I was going. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody, anything like that. So I definitely get that. It just became a you know survival mode, you know, yeah. getting from Absolutely. one place to the next. And yeah, 
Go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. I don't want to interrupt what you were saying. No, because I was saying that that's the exact same thing I did. I would always have my headphones in and it was pretty much tunnel vision. By the time I got to senior year, it was like they weren't even existing <laughs> because mm. I had so many. Like, because it was more black students that were coming in and I was like, OK, we got to. I wanted to make some noise. I wanted people, I wanted to be heard for people to understand the perspective that I had, especially coming from an LDS background and being a black woman and then experiencing these different things within the church and the school because the church, you know, it's it's enmeshed. hundred you know? percent. Oh, yeah. They love the to act like it's not <laughs> it's when it's convenient. I got my diploma. No. I didn't realize this. My diploma is signed by the prophet. I, I didn't ask for what? that. Yeah, it's signed by Russell M. Nelson. I was by him and then by President Kevin Worthen. I was and I saw it. I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't realize that he would be signing my diploma. You know, I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> Shocked me. Um, anyway. What I think is interesting about being black at BYU and you've asked alumni or just even current students, it's very much they describe it the way you were saying they survive. They have to do this to protect themselves. There's this barrier almost that you have to create for yourself to exist in a space that you shouldn't have to, right? And I think that's always very jarring to me that like when I talk about to my other friends who go to other universities, black, white, whatever, mm. racial or ethnic background, they don't talk about their college experience that way. They don't talk about, oh, I had to do this to survive or yeah, school might have been really overwhelming, but it's not like this it was like a not an enjoyable time and i think that's kind of sad sometimes that even how many years later are me and nate graduating from when you were there mm -hmm. and it's the same experience for black students because we are resonating with everything you're saying right and we feel very similarly and that's just sad to me that that's the reality and that that reality is still continuing however many years later yeah yes yeah. it's it's not surprising to me at all because mm -hmm. when I was there towards the end, there was so much red tape. You saw it, Nate, like them trying oh, yeah. to change the, the Black Student Union. They hated the name. Like mm -hmm. they tried to change it to an association and then dealing with other Black students who didn't understand the reason why mm. we had to keep it that way, to keep that name because the reason why they wanted to change it in the first place was to make white people feel more comfortable. Because mm. mm. Black Student Union was associated with with what they thought was hostility and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I think my mentality changed like towards the end is like, you know, I don't care. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you people like, I think I stopped caring about like, especially with, cause you know, you have to go to church and all the other stuff. I didn't care about participating in those uh, activities or um, callings or whatever it was. Cause I was just like, this is, this is, fake mm. you don't even know why you're doing this it's not even real so I, I like disengaged from that like by the end i was like i was completely over i just did what i needed to do went to church on sunday took my sacrament i was like okay bye <laughs> you know what i mean mm -hmm. i didn't feel the need to put on you know or try and be or assimilate or anything like that um it was just done for me and it's still that way now when i deal with white people you got something for me okay mm-hmm <laughs> moving on you know yeah it's very difficult for at least in my life for a white person to break that that barrier of like i don't know, to break into what am i trying to say here I don't, have you ever heard that that tiktok sound or that instagram sound 
where it's like my coworkers always wonder why I'm so quiet. It's because I have nigga thoughts. I no, nigga yeah. <laughs> I go home to my nigga house and I drive my nigga car, and it's like, yeah, my, my like the white people that I know think that I'm very shy, very reserved, very quiet. But then on the other side, when I'm around people that I feel comfortable around, that I trust, I'm like, out of pocket. I'm whole, yeah, I'm a whole different person. Right? <laughs> exactly. So it takes it a lot of effort for them to break maybe? through that. Or not, it's like it's not even code switching. It's I think it's more like a defense mechanism. Like yeah. the walls go up when yeah. I go into certain spaces. And yeah, it's like, like a, a way of protecting myself. Because mm-hmm. you can't trust people, you know? Yeah, you, you can. Like even in my workspace right now. I'm going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain way to be. I feel like when you walk into the room, they feel like you need to disarm them from feeling like, oh, is she an angry black woman? Oh, let's not play with her. You know, because mm-hmm. when I when I did that whole silent thing, they was like, oh, she's intimidating. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> disarm you? Like, that is exhausting. I don't have the energy for mm-hmm. it, you know? And so be it's the same kind of space that you kind of that you have at BYU, except I just go to work and y'all leave me alone, not leave. I do what I assigned to do and then move on, you know? Mm. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking because I'm going into diversity and inclusion work. So just hearing you talk about work and like the reality of what it is being a from a historically marginalized background going into a majority white space majority heterosexual space just like all these things like there's just so much embedded in the reality of what goes through your head and the unconscious behavior that other people exhibit towards you and feeling like like you being intimidating that's something you have to deal with everywhere you know and it's just so unfortunate that that's your reality at a place that you have to go to to survive and I just get super frustrated that there's, I mean, we're trying to work towards changing it, but there's so many people who, like, just the, the fact there are certain people against pushing to have that not be an issue is crazy. Like, there are genuinely people like, I don't see why that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, black students feel uncomfortable. Why? Why would they feel uncomfortable at BYU? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, oh, our hate mail, one of the... We've been getting a lot of hate mail this week. Yeah, we have. It's oh, been interesting. Like big haters. God. And one of the hate hate haters that we that emailed us went out of their way, by the way. Like, you're a dedicated hater. I appreciate you. Love the support. <laughs> went out of his way, emailed us, and he said something like, I am the father of a, like biracial oh, yeah. children. Mm-hmm. He's white. And he's like, my kids have not had a hard time at BYU. What you're doing is making things worse. And I'm like, see... You're the problem, actually, right? Like, the fact that you're defending this so hard to your grave almost, like, to the point that you're emailing us and letting us know that racial things are not an issue on campus when that is the opposite of how many black students experience. I feel bad for his kids. We can bring you how many black students that will tell you the opposite, and you refuse to listen to people's stories and narratives, and people still have a thick skull Mm -hmm. i think the reason why they refuse to listen is because then they feel like you are attacking them Mm. and that they would have to address some of their unconscious biases that Mm. exist within them and how they contribute to the system itself and as far as like his kids they probably unfortunately don't feel comfortable enough to have that conversation with him because Mm -hmm. he wouldn't understand right because he because if he's already being hard-headed about the experiences of so many other black students and people who have been at BYU then he's probably going to be hard-headed about 
what they have to say and dismiss them. So I would hope that he, <laughs> I would hope, right, that he would take a second to think about that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the hope, really right? But, and, yeah. you know, even thinking about what you said, there's always going to be people who, you know, who say the opposite. I think that there are a lot of black people this man was white, but there are a lot of black people who will come and say, oh, these issues don't exist or I've never had this experience Facts. and things like that. And I think a lot of us have been in that place. A lot of black people um, have, you know, not everyone, but a lot of black people have been in a place where they kind of rationalize things or justify things or pretended like certain things didn't exist. Or didn't bother them. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that racism exists systemically, um, institutionally. And, you know, on a personal level, right, it's always there. I mean, you can see it in the laws that are written. You can see it in the statistics and the poverty rates and the rates of income, uh, the income differential. All of these things prove that racism is there and that it exists. I just still have people denying it. And I think it's because, um, you know, sometimes they just may not be at a point where they realize it or to protect themselves. They've gone past that creating a wall and they've taken all those walls down. And kind of put up a wall around their own mind, right? To where they have to to say, "Oh, these things don't exist, or they've never happened." You got your, mm-hmm. um, you know, case in point, like your people like Candace Owens or uh, what's the the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, people like that, <laughs> who will act like these things are not a real issue. Um, they're the ones that that just kind of deny that altogether, you know. Well, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um my honest opinion is that they do know but they have a price tag that's mm. my opinion mm. be wrong you know what i mean that they don't care they just want to be out make it out for themselves you know what i mean mm. and uh, pretend like they don't see it because it comes at a benefit to themselves so mm. you know what i mean that makes a lot of sense i no, mean candace owens wasn't always as outspoken as she is now it, she, yeah she's made a lot of money mm-hmm. from being oh, like exactly. this mm-hmm. clout yeah. <laughs> that's what it is you know um i was thinking too that you know some of the black students when i was at byu a lot of them i would have some black students who would not even look in my direction mm-hmm. yeah all the time all the, all t- the time they i've avoid never eye had that experience until i came to utah like mm-hmm. black people who <laughs> actively avoid you it's not like always oh, strangers but man it's only it's less than 500 of us on campus mm-hmm. and thirty thousand. always say if i'm gonna see you we've been head nodded up hey what's good it, with it they see you they literally right scared Exactly. And I'm just like, what is that? Are you not associating with me because you think your white friends would get scared? Like, what is that about? I never understood that. But also, too, I think that there were some black people who did not come from from or grew up in the U.S. and didn't really understand U.S. Mm-hmm. history. And so yes. their experience like as black people was different. Like for me, I grew up Haitian. You know, mm-hmm. my mom, she grew up in in Haiti where things were thriving for black people. Mm-hmm. And so she never had that um um experience so i didn't grow up in that it wasn't until i got to college when i was in new york and then we started talking about black hair and unconscious biases biases and the paradigms that exist and um i will say that my experience at byu basically prepared me for being a black woman in the united states Mm. interesting being in the workspace because it's really no different i will move to another state I will move to Illinois. I have friends who live in different areas and they're now experienced as adults in their mm-hmm. careers. Mm-hmm. What I experience at BYU, but I've just like learned a mechanism to help me cope with that. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. I never thought about that, but yeah, I guess that's true. Yep. The workforce, BYU is 80% white. 
And I mean, depending on what what area of, of work you go into, you can experience similar statistics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And just like statistically, even as the demographics of the world are changing, like minorities historically marginalized groups, because they're not going to be a minority soon, mm-hmm. number wise, but they the are global still majority. global. Yeah. They are not like in places where like if you are pursuing professional careers, they are not there because of systemic right and institutional issues that have impacted their ability to be able to be in those spaces so it's like as you achieve more the spaces become more white right that's what i found at least as well like the more education i get the more i put myself in spaces to grow professionally financially like the spaces are becoming more and more white not that there aren't spaces that are like that but i have to seek out spaces that are specifically for you know college educated black people or specifically for you know black professionals and said career which again love it it's great but it just isn't naturally there you have to kind of like find that your own community within those spaces which is unfortunate mm-hmm. but again as more black people start going to college other minorities like it will start to change because like on a junior level i've seen that you know a lot of intro roles are more diverse stuff like that but older wise look at the c-suite of most organizations you're gonna look at white men that's very true yeah yep. so i guess to yeah. sum it all up what do we tell our listeners right so like we've talked a lot about the issues that we've experienced but mm-hmm. how do we kind of turn that around and, and kind of give them tools to help so for like our, our students of, or for people of color that are listening what tools can we offer them or like what things can they do to protect themselves in environments that are um, culturally hostile not necessarily like physically hostile but like culturally hostile and then for uh, listeners that are white what can we tell them? Like, what can we do to help them be more aware of what their coworkers or colleagues of color might be going through? Um, for me, I would say for the first question, I'll say that I think that some of the tools that I've used is learning to find community where you can find a village of people who see the value in who you are. Mm-hmm. And then also setting that boundary, even though you're in a space where you got a boss, so you have do not allow anyone to cross your line or boundary. Because for me, I think it will just get worse. And that's okay to have change your mindset to a to a point where if you are in a space where you are the minority, you cannot accept disrespect in any type of way. Because first of all, it's unethical and unpro- unprofessional. You know, and there's a certain way to go about it, but set that boundary for yourself and change your mindset and thinking that if this is not the space, there's another space for me elsewhere. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I will never stay in a position or a job where I feel like I'm being disrespected or um, people are being racist towards me or any of those things. Set those boundaries and protect yourself. I think it's easy to want to bow your head down because and it's just like, no, it's never worth it. Mm. It's never worth it. So, mm-hmm. um, and then all, yeah, again, like I compartmentalize, unfortunately, you know. Um, and I think maybe for white people, I think be genuine. Yeah. <laughs> stop yeah. with the That's fake huge. nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Like, stop. Don't mm-hmm. come to me like, hey, sis. Like, we're never going to talk like that. Mm. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't think I'll ever be in that space where I'm going to be like, hey, girl. Yeah. Like, don't call me homie. Don't, don't call me buddy. Yeah, just be real. And I think 
Yeah, exactly. Be real, be yourself. And if you have questions, you don't know how to be honest about that, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, in your approach, you know, I mean, use your emotional intelligence. I don't know. Research, Google, you know, yeah. And if you see it, when I'm not in the room, or if you have a, 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 a black coworker who's not in the room, um, and um, conversations are being had about their intelligence or their competence, challenge that. Mm-hmm. Challenge that. Because sometimes they don't keep us on the same standard. You can make a mistake and another person make the same mistake, but if you make it, that means you lazy. Mm. And I mean, challenge those conversations. I've seen those conversations happen in front of me and I challenge them, you know, so. I like that, that's good advice. And yeah, I can't stress it enough. We always say be genuine because we can tell when you're not being genuine. Absolutely. We can absolutely tell. And we know like, as as, I mean, unless you catch us on a really bad day for most of the black people I know are not gonna turn down an honest question. They're gonna do their best to answer that question. And if you're really trying to learn and trying to understand, because we want people to understand, we want people to get what we're going through. We don't want people to not get it. Right. So be genuine. I will say, can I say one more thing, mm-hmm. um, especially like for LDS members, this is something that I mean, I'm, I've gone back to church. It's been a struggle. But um, for the LDS members, I think you guys really need to think about that commandment, you know, love one another. If what you're doing is not love stop Hmm. stop it is not your job to judge it is not your job to chastise it is not your job to control oh oh there's a muck around here because you did this it's not your job to point fingers your job is to show me love and if you can't do it then stay in your corner Hmm. and work on that because when people are sending in hate mail and they're lds members you really need to think about that are you reading your scriptures Hmm. because you can't say you love god and you you love god and you can't see him and you see me you can't even love me Hmm. make that make sense make it very true this one that's your job oh go ahead that's your job yeah sorry go ahead I know you're good. I was gonna say it blew my mind because there was another piece of hate mail we got, and it's gonna go up on the TikTok. We'll talk about it more in depth. But somebody <laughs> told us that we were the new version of the KKK, and I was like, man, that that person doesn't know what the KKK is. No, like I just, what the KKK? You oh. mean the people that were murdering people and right. burning crosses? Literal domestic terrorists. They were the original Al Qaeda. Like Ooh. that's if we're if we're being honest. That's what they were. They were domestic Al Qaeda out here bombing things, killing people mm-hmm. um, just for being who they were. You know, um, when we tried to segregate schools, killing people, showing up to, to rallies um, to shout at children. the black right. community, literally terrorizing. Right. And so to compare us to, to the KKK, I was like, man, that's wild. I, I'd never in a million years would have ever compared us to that, you know. But um, yeah, just things like that. It's like, man. And that was probably someone who was from Utah or lives in Utah and is a member of the LDS church who honestly believes that in their heart. That yep. um, that we as as black uh, teenage or not teenage as black students, young college adults. students, young adults, YA, <laughs> <laughs> as black young adults asking white students questions, um, that's equivalent to to murdering and killing and terrorizing an entire generation of people. So mm. interesting. They have some unpacking to do. Oh, really, sure. truly, quite a lot. Quite like, a lot. On the inside, just a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this has been a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, 
-hmm. Also reminding me that there's so much work to do at BYU that, you know, however far apart our graduation dates are, and it's still the same thing, that BYU really needs to be reflective of that. That obviously whatever, like certain things have changed, but the overall individual experience of black students is similar. And I think this is telling, and I hope someone high up can hear this, whoever is, if they are, that you need to do some self-reflection in BYU to really analyze what systemic changes can you make to have that, have this experience that we're, we've been discussing not happen. Amen to that. Which again falls on the church. And again, that's the story for another time. If you want to hear my opinions oh. on that, <laughs> maybe next podcast episode. Yeah. How in order to get more black people at BYU, you need more black people in the church. And to do that, the church got to apologize. Mm-hmm. Trickle down effect. Oh. Oh. Well, but they, they don't yeah, care about it, that. It, right. We don't have enough time think. for that today. But yeah. Yeah. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Neverlene, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. It was mm-hmm. great to have this conversation. Um, and do you want to just briefly talk about your podcast, The Writer's Room? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I started a podcast about a year ago. And basically, the podcast is almost kind of like the same thing with Black Menaces. I'm choosing to be intentional about the kind of lives that you, you're living, you know? And I um, talk about the obstacles that we run into, the naysayers, the people who, who want to tell you you can't do something when you have a goal or you want to be whatever it is that you feel is out of reach, I, I always encourage my listeners to go for it. And we just discuss the different roadblocks that come along the way when you're on your journey of becoming and just, yeah. So that's basically what the show is about. Okay. And you can find me on Spotify. Perfect. It's called the writer's room. And yeah, I, think, the writer's I room. think your name, I looked it up. I think the name on there is Navi. Yes, Navi. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. So yeah, check out the Writers Room on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Be sure to listen to that, and uh, be sure to follow the Black Menaces on Patreon at the Menace Society, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Black Menaces. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, <laughs> or, <Stop>. <laughs> or menace moments you'd like to share with us, please email. Here we go. Black Menaces Podcast at Gmail dot com. There we go. I yes, got we got it. We mess it up every week. Just black menaces. (laughs) There we go. Um, Yes, but thank you guys for listening in, and we will catch you guys next week on the podcast. And remember, always be a menace.